The Guardian. Welcome to the first in a series of five shows exploring the finest British podcasts of the past 12 months, as selected by the judges of the British Podcast Awards 2018. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and today we're going to kick off this celebration by looking at the nominees for three more categories. Podcasts that feed you nuggets of information, the smartest category, and those that make sure we don't miss anything, current affairs. But we'll start with the podcasts that only appeared on the scene last year, but have already gained a loyal following. The best new podcast 2018. Let's tuck in. And the first nominee we'll hear from is Adrift with Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle Port. The philosophy behind this podcast is simple. It's hard being a human. Adrift's creators claim the show is a comic tragedy for anyone flailing in the sea of their own inadequacy. Annabelle and Jeff bring listeners together with their stories of dealing with everything being thrown at them. Here they are talking about one of life's biggest challenges. I want to begin by talking about a couple of the um, difficulties in the social minefield of eating out. Okay. So first thing, just very quick, what are you supposed to do with a triple-decker sandwich? Oh, so difficult. I tend to just either split it in half or get the knife and fork out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, you're saying disassemble it. Yeah, yeah. So then what is the point? I know, I totally agree. And I don't think that cocktail stick is doing very much (laughs) to keep it intact. It's doing nothing. And I'm I'm a tiny-mouthed man. I mean, maybe if you have a huge mouth, maybe if you're Steve Tyler from Aerosmith (laughs) or something, it's a different experience. But how many of us really have mouths like that? Not many. So that aside... um, Last night, we went out for a meal with our friends, Nick and Catherine. And do you know what I'm done with? Superlatives after every course. What do you mean? So if you go out for, say, a three-course meal, Mm. and sometimes if you're going somewhere nice, they bring you those little things before each course, like amuse-bouche things. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Um, So they come over and say, how was that? You say, oh, it's great, thanks. And then after the next course, they say, oh, and how was that? I get worried about using the same adjective. Oh, so when you say, so oh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And then the next one, marvellous. And I just don't like the pressure of having to come up with a different superlative every time. <laughs> you wouldn't just use the same one. No, because I think, look at him with his limited vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good point. Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle Port. And we'll be hearing more from Jeff Lloyd later. My First Time is a podcast series from Vice Channel Broadly, exploring sexuality, gender and kink with the wide-eyed curiosity of a virgin. Every week, host Zing Sing dives into someone's story of a first-time sexual experience. The podcast sources stories that have never been heard before from people who, they say, don't usually get a platform for these things. Here's one such example. When I was about 16, 17, 18, I started becoming like interested in sex. But I didn't actually have any sexual experiences really until after university when I was about 22. And that was kind of a mixture of like, I went to an all-girls school. I didn't know many guys and I was straight at the time. My mum is also kind of like quite traditional and like put up a lot of barriers to that. And so kind of her approach to it and the fact that I'd gone to like a girls' school where that focus was on kind of like morality or what they saw as morality I just kind of like never got the chance Um, but then once I started to have sex there was also this kind of like shame based around it 
And then move on like about five years and I started getting more involved in like feminist activism and reading about that kind of stuff. Now I'm completely like the opposite and I'm like, you know, we should be as open as possible and I'm like willing to speak about my sexual experiences. Sophie was young and she was excited to get into a new relationship, which I think is a feeling that most, if not all of us, can sympathise with. But as with all relationships, she didn't know the score until she was in it. The person who I was in a relationship for those five years, we were really similar and we had a lot of interests in common. How he came across to me when we first met and also like most people most of the time was like he was really sweet and gentle, um, kind of camp as well, which I think people didn't expect um, because during that five years, I didn't really tell anyone about what was going on really, but I hinted at it or a few people knew bits Uh, Once I came out of it, I started being really honest about it. And we had obviously a lot of mutual friends that were like completely shocked. You know, like I never thought he would uh, be the kind of person to do that. He had a lot of mental health issues, which people kind of like had recognised, but they never thought he would like take that sort of out on me. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I found it so difficult to leave is that he had kind of like two sides, you know. That was guest Sophie on the My First Time podcast from Vice. You also heard host Zing Sing. Next, we have a podcast that is something very different. Radio Atlas is made up of subtitled audio from around the world. They bring you documentaries and sound art made in languages you don't necessarily speak. This is the only video podcast that made it into the nominees this year. We've included a very short clip here from the Danish podcast Third Ear, where Thomas Anderson describes the night someone tried to kill him. Jeg hedder Thomas Andersen, og jeg kommer fra Viborg. I Viborg bor der også en anden, der hedder Thomas Andersen. Jeg har kun mødt ham én gang, og det var en nat for 13 år siden. Men det møde, det ændrede mit liv. En ung mand er i livsfar, efter han blev kørt ned bagfra under et opgør mellem unge i Viborg. Politiets teknikere måler op efter en grov hævnagt. Klokken tre i nat blev en 17-årig mand fra Viborg ramt af en bil her på Rødingvej i byens udkant. You get the idea. Open your ears to audio from different countries via their website radioatlas.org. So I'm pretty sure if you haven't heard our next nominee, you'll have heard of it. Reasons to be Cheerful launched in September 2017 and is presented by ex-Labour leader Ed Miliband alongside radio and TV presenter Jeff Lloyd. Yes, him again. Each episode focuses on positive, radical ideas to improve society. Here's a clip from the podcast where things get pretty heated over board games. So I've got a quiz question for you. Okay. Who invented Monopoly? So the story... It relates to what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so the story goes that it was a husband and wife and they went into the board game manufacturer to pitch the idea and they didn't have any playing counters, so she used the charms off her charm bracelet and that's where... Wrong, Okay, 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 okay. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, that sounds apocryphal. So this is a really interesting, but it's got a sort of feminist side to this. The, the the general mythology is it was invented, and people have to bear with me here because it does relate to our topic. It was the general view is it's related, invented by a guy called Charles Darrow in the 1930s. He dreamed up Monopoly, but it's been recently discovered that, that is actually untrue. That it was actually invented by a, a woman called Elizabeth 
Meiji, M-I-M-A-G-I-E. Uh, and she was given a copy of a book by her father, which was written in 1879. It was a book by somebody called Henry George called Progress and Poverty. And it was about landlords and land and rent and all of those things. And so she invented something which was called the, she called the landlord's game in the early uh, 1900s. And she was a stenographer. And basically she said this about the game, um, uh, is a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It might well have been called the game of life as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world. And the object is the same as a human race in general seem to have the accumulation of wealth. So basically, she invented this thing called the landlord's game. She did actually, I think, patent it. She applied for a patent for her game in 1903, uh, in her 1930s, sorry. Uh, she represented the less than 1% of all patent applica- applicants at the time who were women. And it turns out this guy Charles Darrow, and I'm not saying he didn't, he wasn't open about this. He played a version of this game, and then appears to have invented it. And, she, and as wow. I say, it was called the Landlord's Game. So and it, was, it was originally like a cautionary, a cautionary, cautionary tale, warning tale. against. It. It was a, I think there may have even been two different versions of the game. But you can, if you go online, I think we'll provide a uh, link to it. Um, we can, uh, uh, you can see her. Bo- I think there's pictures of her. Of the of the board that she this, that she this, invented. That's this pretty good. Fascinating. We've had the JFK papers released recently. Uh, we recently heard the true story of the bus on the way to the Olympic Park, and now the truth about All the origins of, of Monopoly. Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, the next nominee has all the components of a true crime podcast, but it looks at things from another angle. The tip-off takes listeners behind the scenes of some incredible investigative journalism. In other words, real-life detective stories. Presented by journalist Maeve McLenahan, you'll never read about crimes, corruption and wrongdoing in the same way ever again. In this clip, she reveals the story behind the scandal of recent donations to the Conservative Party. Back in 2015, Heidi Blake had just set up a new investigations team at BuzzFeed UK and was on the hunt for a story. One evening, she was in a pub in central London when a tantalising piece of information came to light. So I was drinking a pint of Guinness um, in a pub uh, somewhere around King's Cross with a, a source that I'd known for a while, um, somebody I, I you know, had reason to trust. And we were chatting about an entirely separate matter. And this person just kind of casually mentioned, oh, hey, by the way, would you be interested um, if I were to tell you that the single biggest donor to the Conservative Party. Looks like it's laundering money through the post office. Um, and I was like, like, yes, I'm interested. Please will, you, please will you tell me what you know? The name of the company in question rang a bell, but it was hardly well known. Like a mobile. So they're, a, they're actually a really big company. They're telling over a billion pounds a year and more. Um, but they're actually sort of relatively little known outside the community that buys their airtime. Like once you start looking at them, you realise that their signage is on basically like every news agent in in the capital and across the country and actually across Europe when you travel. Um, but they they kind of somehow manage to stay reasonably out of the public consciousness. In fact, Like a Mobile operates in more than twenty countries worldwide. They're a mobile virtual network operator. You might have seen their prepaid international phone cards for sale in your local newsagent. But despite not being a household name for most people, 
they are certainly known to the Conservative Party. In fact, they appear to have one fan you probably have heard of. This is an incredible business. That's but Boris Johnson, speaking at a Leica Mobile event back in 2012. This is a fantastic service you provide for London. This is one of the ways in which the London economy works. Boris there was singing the praises of Leica Mobile's input to the London economy. But Heidi's source suggested something else was going on. Something that hinted at some very questionable financial practices. And we, we were tipped off that they were suspected of laundering money um, and they were suspected of doing it by depositing very large sums of cash in rucksacks that they were ferrying around to 10 different branches of the post office across London. And according to the source, this wasn't small change they were talking about. Twice a day, they were dropping sums of as much as £250,000 in cash um, into a whole network of bank accounts at the, at the post office. So they had a good lead, but there was no paperwork, no evidence, nothing. Just a tip. We were trying to kind of fathom out, well, how would we prove that they're doing this and try and get to the bottom of what that's all about? And that was when we figured out that we were going to have to go and buy a load of wigs and hidden cameras and mount like a full on surveillance campaign. The first thing to do was to check the location the source had talked about existed. So the team set off to East London. Maeve McLenahan of the Tip Off podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And the Tip Off was also nominated in our next category. It's the Smartest Podcast Award, supported by Whistledown Studios. The second nominee is Blue Planet 2, the podcast. You'd be hard-pushed to find someone that hasn't watched the BBC Wildlife documentary, but you may not have known about the podcast. Becky and Emily, BBC radio makers, worked across the car park from the Blue Planet team and from here they got an idea for the show. They interviewed the team for stories about eternal jellyfish and deep sea monsters. In this clip, Becky and Emily try to get their heads around the enormous timescales of the deep ocean. It's that penny drop feeling. We have this sense as a species that the whole world revolves around us and ticks to our clock. But when you zoom out, we pale into insignificance in many ways, particularly when we compare our lifespans to the timescales of these deep sea dwellers. So you've got things like giant mussels. Giant mussels that can live and grow for a century or more, pack tightly together. Which pretty much rivals our time frames, right? A hundred years, letter from the Queen. Yeah, that's a lot of candles on a cake. It's a lot of candles, but we get our heads around that. Yeah. And then it sort of spirals a bit from there. Down here, in this blackness, creatures live beyond the normal rules of time. Siphonophores are virtually eternal. They repeatedly clone themselves. Virtually eternal. So I can't really explain eternity uh, because I don't have an infinite amount of time, but there are these deep sea corals which grow just a hair's breadth a year. But that's fine because... Some of them can live for 4,000 years. Four millennia. Four millennia. Yeah, living now. In this world, with you and me, a living coral that started its tiny little coral days 4,000 years ago. Emily Knight and Becky Ripley of Blue Planet 2, the podcast. Next, we have a podcast that brings classical music to the people. Kelly Harlock and Chris Bland host the Classical Podcast. 
the show argues that classical music doesn't need to be boring, pretentious or complicated. Instead, they reveal the excitement and energy behind the compositions that so many people overlook today. It's now time for... That is correct. It is now time for us to condense an entire composer's life down into 60 of Her Majesty's British seconds. Are you sure you're up to the task? Nope, and I never am. <laughs> but let's just smash it. Let's smash it. We never learn, do we? for the best. We never learn. Fingies crossed. All right, Kelly, Camille Saint-Saëns in 60 seconds. Oh Three, <laughs> two, one... Go. Camille Sassons was born on October 9th, 1835 in Paris. He was an only child. He was a natural musician and was playing piano by the age of three. Started piano lessons at age seven. People were super impressed and competitive to Mozart. P- made his public debut at age 10. Started a Paris conservatoire at age 13. Was encouraged to learn the organ because it would lead to more opportunities. Became a bloody great organist man. 1851 started studying composition too. Left conservatoire at 1853. Got jobs as an organist. Made good money. Then became organist of La Madeleine, a super famous church. And composer Liszt declared him the greatest organist in the world. 1861 started teaching. One of his students was Gabriel Thore. Uh, left teaching in 1865. Uh, started premiering way more stuff and became noted figure in mus- musical life in Paris and other French then war broke Halfway out and he had to serve in the National Guard got stuff got intense had to escape to temporary exile in England returned to Paris 1871 joined pro-French Société Nationale de Musique after this premiered uh, after this premiered more stuff wrote more operas lived as a shameless bachelor with his mum until he was 40 then randomly got married to a 19 year old they suffered some tragedies and separated three years later started hanging out with Fauré and his family and said 1880s tried to write more operas but everyone thought he was rubbish 1890s went on holiday a lot and seconds. didn't compose much in 1900 came back to Paris and remained there for the rest of his life didn't like the new emerging musicians like Debussy, Schoenberg and Stravinsky they didn't like him Four, either played three. a few more concerts and, and died of a heart attack on 16th of December. 1921. Kelly Harlock and Chris Bland of That Classical Podcast. Next in the smartest podcast category, The Illusionist, a show by Helen Zaltzman, she of Answer Me This fame, that sheds light on the language we speak. It doesn't cater for a specific audience. Anyone can listen in and learn in a way that is interesting and just a bit of a laugh. Indefinite hyperbolic numerals are words that have the form of numerals. They act like numerals. Um, but as their name would suggest, they're indefinite. They don't have a definite numerical reference and they're hyperbolic. In other words, they're whatever they are, however big they are, they're really big. Well, not all of them are really big. The smallest indefinite hyperbolic numerals are words like umpteen and umpty and umptysteen and 411. And these are big indefinite, but we still have a sense that these are quite small because of the morphemes T and teen. Those words behave like the real number words, so we deduce that they refer to similar quantities. This suggests that they're maybe less than 100 because on on the model of 15 or 70, we imagine that umpty is is big, but it's probably not a 1,000. Then above that, you have the numerals like zillion and jillion and squillion. And those are clearly bigger than a million because most of us know what a million is and we know that everything less than a million has you know, some different form, but very, very big. Then if a quantity is bigger than very, very big, you can embiggen your indefinite hyperbolic numeral by adding an intensifier. The intensifiers are ka and ga and ba. So if I were to ask, which is bigger, a zillion or a bazillion, almost all English speakers will say, oh, a bazillion is definitely bigger than a zillion. So you have this peculiar case where you have two indefinite hyperbolic numerals, neither one of which has a specific numerical meaning, but everyone would agree that one is larger than the other. We do use real numbers hyperbolically too. 
Outside of economics and astrophysics, how often do people say billions and actually mean it? We do this all the time. You say something like, oh, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Well, that's a hyperbolic numeral. Of course, you haven't really told the person a thousand times. Helen Zaltzman's podcast, The Illusionist. Next, Stop and Search with Jason Reed contends that it's not just a podcast, it's a tool to evoke social change, challenging thinking around drug laws and seeking to end the criminalisation and stigma around addiction. Using an array of voices such as the former president of Switzerland, journalists, comedians, celebrities and also including bereaved families, each contributor brings a unique perspective to the broad subject. As you'll hear in this clip, guests are given the chance to really open up with their views, voices and experiences. I don't worry that that uh, being a stand-up is like a new manifestation of my addiction. It, we found, haven't we? Neil? Porn is. Yes, uh, we're, we're going to get on to porn um, because it's actually genuinely quite a fascinating subject, porn. And it's, no it's something that we've not done on this podcast before. I absolutely guarantee, I said this to you just before we went on, I guarantee looking out at this audience, I would guess at least four people sitting in this room whose relationship with pornography makes them uncomfortable. If you can put your hands up. <laughs> No, up in the air. Don't be disgusting. <laughs> There's really interesting facts about this. Fascinating. So cocaine will give you a 300% increase in dopamine release within your brain. 300% increase on average from cocaine use. Dopamine, it's the bit that makes you feel good. Online porn. Anybody care to hazard a guess as to what the dopamine increase is in your brain when you look at online porn as a percentage? Cocaine's 300% increase. 200%. No dealer, you're never going to die, you're never going to black out. It's limitless. 200% increase in dopamine and it damages your dopamine uptake really, really badly. There is an epidemic of porn addiction uh, worldwide right now and it's one of the massive unspoken things. And by addiction, I mean people becoming dependent on that amount of dopamine, damaging the dopamine uptake in their brain and finding the real world struggles to compete with their online experience and it's not confined just to pornography. Social media serves a very similar function with massive, massive increases in dopamine release as you look at social media, email and text messages. The real You cannot walk fast enough down the road or run fast enough down the road to have as many dopamine triggering experiences as you do sitting and flipping through Facebook or looking at porn or Twitter or whatever else you cannot do it and my brain as an addict so I have to be aware of these sort of things I'm not campaigning against porn nor against drugs nor against alcohol or anything else my brain as an addict I have to take responsibility for the way that I interact with those kinds of processes because I can get myself uh, in a terrible state that was Stop and Search with Jason Reed, published by the Distraction Pieces Network, marking the end of the Smartest Podcast nominees and also the start of our next category, because Stop and Search is not only smart, but it's also up for Best Current Affairs, along with Ed Miliband's Reasons to be Cheerful. So here's our first new nominee in the category. 
and strap in because it's about Brexit. The word we hear every single day but gets more confusing the more we talk about it. But fear not. The BBC's Brexit cast is here to not only help audiences wade through the deep and murky waters of the Brexit negotiations, but also make people smile and want to keep coming back for more. Here's a clip from the episode the morning after the Phase 2 agreement. You know, sometimes things just start to feel a bit itchy, you know, Mm. sometimes things go a bit quiet. I had a text from somebody in a government department who remain unnamed saying, oh, the dynamic is positive. And then I had a conversation with a diplomat at roughly about that same time who was at an evening event, but early evening drinks, but stepped away to take the call and said, aha, something serious is now on the table. And as they understood it, at that point, London, Brussels and Dublin were all happy. So this was kind of early evening, Adam. And then you and I were having a bit of a chat around about that point. Then the tooth tweet came. Da, da, yeah. da. Mm. So I then went mm. to another pub. Sorry about this. Is this what you do? <laughs> this is, I was meeting news my gathering. sources, meeting my sources, getting the news. But it's great because every step of the journey, I got a few more facts to help yeah. us work out what might be going on. Then I got a call from a very secret squirrel source who said, tomorrow morning, you probably want to be outside the bar. Mm -hmm. the the European Commission HQ at about 7am and I'd really recommend Mm -hmm. keeping your phone on by the the side of the bed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's when we definitely knew the the game was afoot and then Juncker Spokesman put that online didn't he Adam in the same kind of thing basically saying watch this space everyone make sure that you're around Margaritas the famous yes uh, famous for his eyebrows yes then Then, I then went to my third pub (laughs) did you? (laughs) Um, were you looking for Juncker? well you know they have very small (laughs) yes you know the beers are very small here in Belgium, they're oh, not like they? pints. They're oh, like little, they're about fifteen percent. Well, um, okay, there is that too. Um, and then, yeah, I caught up with the British hacks just before bed, and oh, the buzz was amazing. Mm. The, mm. It, we all knew something massive mm-hmm. was going to happen. I went to sleep, and then I was woken up by a phone call from another highly placed source at nine minutes past five, so nine mm. minutes past four British time, saying. Get out of bed. The Prime Minister is in the air. That was the Brexit cast, an original podcast for the BBC. Now, this next entry looks further afield. Each week, the Foreign Desk examines a different international issue. Sometimes it's a headline. Sometimes it's an overlooked story, maybe a general trend or a phenomenon, but always featuring people who know their stuff. Brought to you by the people at the magazine The Monocle, in this clip, the divisive figure of Donald Trump is explored a year into his presidency. As recently as a year ago, it was possible to find sentient adults willing to insist that the presidency of the United States would change Donald Trump, that he would wind in the bluster and belligerence of his campaign and govern like a grown-up. A year later, we have learned that despite his tenuous relationship with verifiable reality, there is a certain vulgar honesty to Trump, that what you see, i.e. a bloviating tangerine narcissus uninterested in anything but his own reflection and golf, is very much what you get. So how do you even begin to go about assessing the first year of the weirdest administration in American history? If the presidency hasn't changed Trump, has Trump changed the presidency? And has he got anything actually right, even if only by accident? This is The Foreign Desk. I don't know if it's even worth uh, having the conversation about new low or where the bar is, because the bar is going to be wherever... Trump brings it, and we should expect that now. This is what 2018 is going to be, is what 2019 is going to be, is what 2020 is going to be. 
When you have a, a leader who has lied 2,000 times since taking office, 5.6 times per day, it's sort of like being the frog in the boiling water. You have no idea each week what you're already as a country started to just live with and normalize. But we don't want fake news. Bad thing. Very bad for our country. Presidents generally don't have time to pursue grudges with the media or other sideshows like that with the intensity that, that he has because, quite frankly, they're so busy all the time trying to, you know, run a country. His presidency is so, so enormous. It's so different. It's so extreme. It's shaking up world politics to some degree, but it's certainly shaking up American politics. That was The Foreign Desk for Monocle 24. Next up in our look at current affairs podcasts, the weekly economics podcast aims to make economic news accessible and their audience is largely made up of young campaigners and activists. They point out that a lot of economics coverage assumes a level of prior knowledge most of us just don't have. So their aim has always been to fix that and help listeners to become informed news consumers. Here's a clip from their first episode after the 2017 general election. Andrew, do you think it's right to say that this wasn't an election about economics? Well, I'm I'm going to fudge the answer, to be honest, because it it kind of wasn't. It wasn't, I think, is the is certainly the way I see it. It's it wasn't in a in an explicit sense. And a lot of, you know, macroeconomists, people who look at the whole of the economy um, were frustrated by that. I think they were frustrated by the lack of debate about what we should do, for instance, with interest rates and monetary policy and fiscal policy and so forth. I think that was a was something that came through from, you know, a lot of the economics blogs. so in that sense, it wasn't. But actually, the the undercurrent, I, I think, is still, um, you know, Aditya Chakraborty and The Guardian, I think, put this really well. It, it This was the first kind of post-crash election. And I think that's right. It's taken us 10 years for the political and, and economic ramifications of what we, well, nearly 10 years of, of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the finance crisis and then the economic crisis to to begin really to experience it. And the, the, the thing that always astonished me about those series of events at the time was that they didn't trigger the kind of indignation and, and unrest that you might have thought, because actually, you know, we were all fleeced uh, and we are still being fleeced as a consequence of it. But actually, perhaps this is what's happening now. You know, we're seeing this gradual revolution unfolding where, you know, one institution after another, and this links back to what's happened at Grenfell Tower this week and the consequences for for the housing management organisation and the council, one institution after another has has, um, has come under scrutiny and come into and fallen into crisis. And I think people are are reacting to that, and that's given you a very volatile electorate. So the economic issues were there. They so just they're there. Different. They're on. Un, they're under the surface. I think. I I think it's actually in one way been more about economics. There's a real tendency to think of the economy as like this abstract, essentially an abstract number in the form of GDP growth. But this election was very much about things like employment and wages and housing and fiscal policy. So how how we spend revenues or how we don't spend it. More, more pertinently and, and who gets taxed and why. Those are really fundamental economic questions and that they really relate to our economic system. Um, so I think the debate about the economy has actually been democratised almost in the last general election. That was the weekly economics podcast. Find it and all our nominees through your podcast app of choice. 
And that's the end of our rundown of the best new, current affairs and smartest podcasts. And if your favourite British podcast isn't on the list, they can still win something if you nominate them for the Listener Choice Award. All you have to do is vote at britishpodcastawards.com by this Thursday, the 17th of May. The rules are also on the site. That's britishpodcastawards.com. And don't forget to check out the wonderful podcasts of The Guardian at theguardian.com forward slash audio. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producers are Chika Ayers and Matt Hill for Rethink Audio and the British Podcast Awards. Until next time, goodbye. The Guardian. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 